on November 3rd, 1515, 505 years ago, nearly to the day, young Augustinian monk, German reformer, many of you at least know the name, Martin Luther, began his lectures on the book of Romans. What he didn't know when he began lecturing was that he would be the leader, in one sense, of a revolution. We refer to it as a reformation, but it caused a revolution. Luther did not want to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it from within, but as he followed those things that he was teaching, he realized that there needed to be a break. If not a reformation, then a break from it. Now, many since then have out-Luthered Luther, and he ended up uh, quite upset that his followers turned to violence in order to get their message across. He was never an advocate. And as far removed as this date might seem to you, it was the beginning of a revolution within Christendom. And as I said to you at the opening of our service today, uh, if it wasn't for this Reformation, you and I, I don't know where we would be. I don't know if they would be Protestants. I don't know how God and his providence might have unfolded things from there. It was during these lectures that Luther would come to an understanding that the righteousness of God in his words was foreign, meaning it's external. It's outside of us. Luther, more than perhaps than any other person in history, did his darndest to earn the favor of God, to earn and become righteous so that God would be pleased with him. And he failed miserably time after time. It wasn't until he started working carefully through the book of Romans where he realized that the righteousness of God, which is required of us, is external to us. It liberated him. And his pen did not stop. He realized that that righteousness that we need in order to stand before a holy God was outside of us and was to be appropriated by faith alone, by God's grace alone. Three years ago, we did five sermons on those solas, if you please. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone. And these things began, though Luther never expressed it explicitly that way, his understanding of these solas became known through his lectures on the book of Romans. And so began the Protestant Reformation. You and I literally are here today because 505 years ago, this Augustinian monk began teaching the book of Romans. Now, there were precursors to Luther, and there were many who came after him, but he is a mountain a mountain figure, Mount Rushmore-type figure for we Protestants to this very day. It was a movement, whether we realize it or not, to which you and I are indebted to this very day. It would be difficult to overstate the Book of Romans, the importance of the Book of Romans in the history of the Christian Church, not just for Luther, but prior to him as well, and then after him, over and over again, where Romans has been preached, there has been reformation. There's been revival. For whatever reason, God seems to be especially pleased to 
move when Romans is rightly understood, which is why for years leading up to this sermon series, you heard me talk about my fear and my trembling at the idea of working my way systematically through this text as we have been doing for several years now. It is literally one of the highlights of my life to be able to preach through the book of Romans with each and every one of you. I pray, as I said to you years ago, that God would give me breath to get to Romans. Now I continue to pray to the Lord that he'd give me breath to get through it because we're doing it systematically and we're doing it well. Today, we tackle uh, the last paragraph in Paul's extended argument in Romans 9 through 11. It's the paragraph that you heard Brother Anthony read, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32. And it's a summary statement, not only of Romans 9, 10, and 11, but it's really a summary statement of Romans 1 to 11 uh, up to this point in time. He's going to pivot with a doxology in verses 33 to 36. And then there's the great, in light of God's mercies, brothers and sisters, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, which we'll be looking at, God willing, the first part of 2021. Because we'll need a couple more weeks with the missionary coming next week to finish this section, and then we've got Advent, and then we'll head into the new year, beginning in Romans chapter 12, asking ourselves the question, what are the marks of a church? What, is a, what does a group of people look like that have been blessed with the mercies that have been described in Romans chapter 11, 1 to 11? But before we get there, Romans eleven twenty five to 32. Mystery is a most important word in the New Testament. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second, and it's the core of this passage. So the passage breaks out two rather simple points around the idea of mystery in verses 25 to 27. Paul exposes the mystery, and then 28 to 32, he explains it. I'm not trying to be cute, but that's the simplest way to, to get at it. 25 to 27, he exposes the mystery, and then 28 to 32, he's going to tell us what it is. He's going to explain it to us. And I, I hope then in some sense, your breath is taken away by this. This is why you heard me pray this, why you've already heard me announce this. This is an astounding conclusion to this argument that he's making, uh, to the first 11 chapters of Romans uh, chapter 11, to think about where we are literally on this day, to think that we're on the right side of history, that we're on the other side of the cross, that we're new covenant believers, that this is no longer a mystery. This is no longer unknown to us. It has been made known to us. It should rob you of your breath. It really should. Every page of Scripture should pull you up short, but when you come to something like this and you realize where we are in this time of history and that we're recipients of this glorious word ought to be something that revolutionizes the way you think about the way that you live. Romans 11, 25-32. The mystery exposed, the mystery explained. Let's look at this exposure first. In Romans 11, 25, 26, 27, the Apostle Paul, I've been telling you, particularly through this section, is a, is a pastor. He's a missionary. He's an apologist. He's a pastor, and very pastoral here. You wouldn't think of it, because he, he's, he can be chippy in some places, but he, he, he's got a pastoral heart, and it comes out here in this way. He wants the people of God to stay on track 
any good pastor wants the people of God to stay on track. Well, on track toward what? On track toward maturity, on track toward unity, on track toward Christ-likeness. That's, that's the pulse of Romans, and particularly right here. He's calling for maturity. He's calling for unity. He's calling for Christ-likeness. And he posts a sign. We're on the road, we're on a track, and there's a sign that says this way, not this way. This is what's going on right here. Lest you be wise in your own sight is how he opens verse 25. Does he have Proverbs 3.7 in the back of his mind? He may. It's a nearly direct quote. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul realizes that's trouble. I mean, right out of the gate, he's saying, look, as your pastor, though he hasn't been there, as your pastor, I don't want you going along the wrong track. And that wrong track is what you believe to be the wise thing. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. The wisdom of man is not something you want to lean too hard on when the wisdom of God is readily available to you by faith in Christ Jesus. That's a good pastor. The good pastor stands at the intersection and says, not this way, this is trouble, go this way. This is what he's doing. Lest you be wise in your own sight, or some, some translations say conceits. So he's still getting after the Gentiles for their arrogance and for their pride. And what he's saying to them is, look, I see your arrogance. I see your pride. That's not a good thing. And I'm a good pastor. And I'm going to run the risk of you getting upset with me for calling some things out. Woe unto the pastor who doesn't at times make you stand up and say, well, what is he doing? Woe to the pastor who only does that. But if you come and go Sunday after Sunday and do nothing but feel good, which certainly I want you to, but feeling good also can come with understanding that, man, the Word of God searches me. He calls out some stuff that makes me defensive. And like I tell anybody who'll stand still long enough, when, when you find yourself getting defensive, there's a good chance that that's a cloak covering the idol that you don't want anybody else to see. Lest you be wise in your own sight or in your own conceit, I do not want you to be unaware or stated positively, I want you to understand. And that's the title that I've chosen. I want you to understand this mystery. It, I just love the... I, I can feel the pulsating from Pastor Paul on this. I want you to understand. I, I'm so glad that I feel that throughout these past couple of weeks because I'm thinking I'm, I'm on a decent track because I feel for you that I want you to understand. I literally want you to get this, not just this passage, but the book of Romans, and where Romans fits, and the entire book. It's why I live. I want you to understand this mystery. I do not want you to be unaware. It's a good pastor right there. Whoa! Danger ahead! Whoa! I don't want you to be unaware of that pothole down on the corner. Whoa! Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Mystery, you, you've heard, not Agatha, Agatha Christie here. It's not. So many think that. It's a whodunit. Looking for clues. 
Now, biblically speaking, mystery once was what was once concealed, now revealed. That's a textbook, single-sentence definition of New Testament mystery. What was once concealed, now revealed. So, you know, I, I went across the stage every once in a while with your timeline, Genesis, Revelation, and I come over here and I stand here and say, this is the cross. This is the dividing line of history. We're on this side of the cross. We are in an extraordinarily privileged position. Because now the mystery, which was concealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, and Daniel, and David, and Isaiah, all anticipated by them, but hidden from them, now revealed to us. I've been working with the eighth grade a little bit on this, and I'm just blowing their minds because they can't get, the, uh, they can't get their head wrapped around the idea that I say audacious things like, if you're in Christ right now, you're greater than David. I mean, even an eighth grader realizes, man, that, you're treading on some pretty sacred ground right there, buddy. I'm a 13-year-old preteen, and I'm greater than King David? And I say, yeah. I say, you're greater than Abraham. Whoa. Abraham. Promise, covenant me. Yeah, why? Because I'm on the other side of the cross. We have more revelation than Abraham did. Although Abraham foresaw and believed, so the revelation that he had received, he believed, and God credited to him his righteousness. So not only is the position that you and I are in incredibly privileged, this side of the cross, but guess what? The responsibility's jacked up, too. Because now you've got more. Abraham had a dollar. You've got ten. How's your investment? A partial hardening. Here comes the mystery. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Verse 25. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, before we get to his Old Testament support of that statement, we need to sit here for a second. This is one of the, it may be the most snarly sentence in all of Paul's writings. Romans 11.26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. The, the variety of interpretations over that one phrase are staggering. I have got books, literally, at home. Old books on this verse. This is what it means. This is what it doesn't mean. So what I'm about to say to you, what I believe it means, is the distillation of hours of pouring through this stuff to get to a point where I can communicate to you what this text means because there's a wide variety of opinions, and some of you might disagree with me, and that's okay, because there are some people who've forgotten more about Christianity than I'll ever know who take a position different from the one I'm going to share with. But I think I can make a pretty strong argument for this position. It's not, it's not out in left field. It's right here in the text, it seems to me. So partial hardening, follow me now, Partial hardening has come upon Israel, okay? So God has slammed the brakes on Israel because of their pride and their rejection of the gospel. So he has hardened them. He's got them held off in general because the remnant has never stopped. 
Remnant has never stopped coming, and it's still coming. As I said to you last week, today, by the end of the service, many Jews will come to a saving knowledge of Messiah. The remnant continues to be built, but there's a partial hardening that has taken place upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. So he's a train conductor, God is right now. He's got this train stopped so that this line can come through. And this train that's coming through are the Gentiles, while he's got his hand held up to the Jewish nation. He lets Jews come in from time to time, but they fit in the same track. Not a separate track, but along the same track to become the people of God. That's what I believe Paul is saying is all of Israel. As I said to you back in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, 9-6, where Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. There are air quotes around the first Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not everybody by birth, by Jewish birth, is going to be saved. He makes that very clear. He made that very clear in the covenant that he made with Abraham, that only the elect will come in. He's going to say that right here in just a couple of seconds. So my understanding of then all Israel will be saved is this idea that all Israel now being redefined as the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. That's the Israel. So your, your Israel here ought to be in quotation marks. All Israel, will, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Just like I showed you as the train conductor. So now the Jewish remnant's coming in, the Gentiles are coming in, and they're coming in the same way. There's not two covenants. There's not two ways, a Jewish way and a Gentile way. It's one way, and it's through Christ. And these Jews and Gentiles coming in along the same line to Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the new Israel. Through Christ, the true Israel, now the Israel that had been promised in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled as the people of God. I told you it was a little rough. But I think it's quite clear there from the text, and in this way, Jews coming in, Gentiles coming in, that's the new Israel, if you please. It's what he's going to call in Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God. And clearly there he means the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, comprised of Gentiles and Jews. Now he's going to support this uh, in verse 26 and 27. The deliverer, read Jesus, will come from Zion, from the Holy Land. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. So he's basing this on Isaiah 59. He melds together Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. And so the deliverer, now this is in Isaiah's time now, six, seven centuries prior to the coming of Jesus, there'll be a deliverer. He'll come from the Holy Land, and what is he going to do? He's going to atone for the sins of Jacob. He's going to establish a covenant that will take away the sins of those who come to him. It's a beautiful argument if you stay with me and stay with Paul in terms of him making this, un making this known. This is the unfolding of the mystery. They were... There were clues in the Old Testament. Now, this side of the cross, the deliverer has come from Zion. Now he's able to show us how this all fits together. There's no longer an unknown. It's now been revealed. Fulfilled in the coming of the covenant-keeping Messiah, gloriously unfolding to this very day. Like I said to you, there, will, there are Jews that are coming in. There are Gentiles that are coming in from all four corners of the globe, and will continue to do so 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6 says something startlingly similar. Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery, same word, this mystery, what is it, Paul? To the Ephesians, this is the way he tells it. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, and then those three big words, through the gospel. My goodness, you want a verse that helps explain the very things that we're looking at right here. There it is for you. This is the people of God that Paul's now describing. Gentiles, Jews, together, through the gospel. It's the only way. It's the only way that one comes to a saving knowledge of Messiah. It's through the gospel, through the proclamation of Christ, crucified, buried, risen again, and now reigning at the right hand of the Father. Of most importance is what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is what this is what the mystery unfolding is, and you could see why it's a mystery, because it was concealed in the Old Testament, even though, as I said, there were leaks. There were psss from the time the promise was made to Abraham. All nations will come to you. Look at the stars in the sky, the sands on the sea. These were not just entirely Jews. The Jewish people were the, were the intended vehicle to, to so delight in their God that the Gentiles would see that and say, I want a piece of that. They failed. Did God, and here comes Romans 9, 10, and 11. Did God therefore reject them? By no means. But he has slammed the brakes on and said, Gentiles, come in and enjoy the mercies that were intended for Israel, now only the remnant's going to enjoy them. Now it's reversed. It's exactly what he's doing. So now the Gentiles, you and me, are so enjoying, so enjoying these mercies, these blessings, that the Jews should now look at us and say, hey, wait a minute, those are ours. We want back in. And the question I raised last week, my own soul, yours, any Jew looking at you recently saying, man alive, I want Messiah. Man. This is why it's such a challenge, why you've heard me pray week after week after week. The church is increasingly becoming like the world, particularly this time in history. People, people are turning disgruntled from the church because we've become nothing more than political players. Which is why you hear me wearing myself, praying that we would seek first the kingdom, the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. And it's and all the That's the mystery exposed. Now he explains it. Beginning in verse 28. Put together, put together this way, the mystery removes boasting and any supremacy, instead humbles us and welcomes those that are different from us, fulfilling the plan of God for the people of God. I can't say that enough. What Paul is getting at here is, is meant to shatter boasting with any idea that one is better than another, humble us, and, and calls us to welcome those that are different from us. 
This is part of the mystery, that God's going to take such a wide variety of people and make them one. He's going to go, Peter's going to go so far as to call them a singular chosen race. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, 28. As regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. They're at the same time enemies and beloved. How does that work? It's a seemingly paradoxical plan of God. He declares that Israel, the Jewish people, are both enemy and beloved. Enemies in the sense that they're opposed to the gospel. They're opposing God. Not only are they opposing God, but they're trying to take people away from, uh, from answering the gospel call in their lives. This is part of the first century, the tension that's going. So they're enemies in the sense that they're opposed to the gospel. Jewish gospel opposition, however, becomes Gentile gospel opportunity. This is such a God thing, isn't it? Jewish gospel opposition becomes Gentile gospel opportunity. On the same hand, other side, they're beloved in the sense that God has chosen election. God has chosen a remnant through Abraham, forefathers, and continues to draw them in. In other words, as he says in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So has God abandoned the Jews? Paul says it twice in this passage, these chapters, absolutely not. Listen to how we started, Romans 9, 4, and 5. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who was God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, no, they have not been rejected. Their gifts and the calling on them are not revocable. Numbers 23, 19. He's not a God that should change. But it doesn't mean that they're all coming. And he shows that in the growth of the remnant. He remains at work as he winds down his argument with further explanation. I want you to understand this mystery. That's what he's doing. I want you to understand this mystery. What is true for the Gentiles, look at verse 30. For, see that word for, that means because, in order that, just as you, you, pronouns are important here, just as you, Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now, see the pivot, you were once, but now. You were once disobedient, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. He's repeating himself. You were disobedient, I put the brakes on the Jewish people, hardened them for a time, and now you've received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now watch what he does. In verse 31, he flips it, or he flips it right back. So they too have now been disobedient. Why? In order that the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy as well. So there's this reversal, and then it's reversed back. So now the Jews have been hardened, so the Gentiles can come in, and now the Gentiles who once were like, I'm sorry, the Jews who were once like the Gentiles, disobedient, now are experiencing God's mercy. That's the remnant that he's talking about that continues to come in to this day. They're experiencing the mercy of God. You talk to any Messianic Jew this day, and they'll tell you the joy that is in their soul when they 
when they had the veil removed from their eyes, like it still is in when Torah is read, the veil is taken from their eyes, and they see Jesus as their Messiah. It's a revolution. And that's God keeping his promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he finally summarized it in verse 32. So God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is all the way back to Romans chapter 9, that difficult 22nd verse about God choosing whom he will. God is consigned. The NIV says bound. To other English translations says in prison. That's the closer word. It's a dungeon word. God is by sin put people in a dungeon. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful image. If you are Apart from Christ, and in your sin, you are living in a dark, dank dungeon. Though you might think you're the freest person on the planet. You're not. That's the insidiousness to the lie of the enemy. God has consigned all to disobedience. He has said this, has he not, Paul, in chapter 3? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that he may have mercy on all. Not everybody but all kinds of people, all kinds of Gentiles, all kinds of Jews, all kinds of Ethiopians, all kinds of Australians, all kinds of Staten Islanders, all kinds of, and you can fill in the blank. It is God who chooses. It is God who has a people for himself, both Jewish and Gentile, that constitute and fulfill the promises made to Israel, now known as the people of God. This is exactly what he has said earlier in verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Nobody comes to Christ on their own accord. You come to Christ when God awakens you and enables you to say yes to the gospel. Otherwise, you're dead for sins and trespasses. Otherwise, you're in darkness. Otherwise, you're incapable. Until God throws the switch and enables you to say yes to the effectual gospel call in your life, you're in a dungeon. You're consigned to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul has taken a long time to answer a simple question with a fairly simple answer. Has God rejected the Jews? Has God's plan failed? Has God failed? The answer to that, all those questions, is by no means. And yet he's taken three chapters to unfold. I don't know exactly why, but it's God's wisdom that he gave us those chapters so that we would take a step back and consider our own roots, and to realize that Christianity is Jewish, and to realize that we unnatural branches have been grafted in, and that we have to continue to walk in the obedience of faith. The Reformation to this day continues. What are we to do with our privilege? I left it very simple. I left it very simple. What was once hidden has now been revealed to us. 
to us. So the question is, what do we do? We'll be talking about God willing in weeks to come as we pivot to chapter 12 as we look at that glorious soul that minimally we here this day. Great. We can be an appreciative people for being shown. That's, that's what I want you to marinate in over these next few days, is to express your appreciation for the wise plan of God that has made a way for you to come and receive it. Start there. I know our lives are complicated and very busy. But we must. We must thank God, expressing our appreciation to Him for having shown us mercy, shown us our family and the deep roots that is our Christian faith. And may we forever, ever be reformed until the day of death. In His name we pray to with much thanksgiving for this glorious text. Father, we pray for the Jewish people. Uh, they are a priority in the gospel. Paul said he, he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. Father, we, we, express, we express our appreciation for showing mercy to us. May we now take that abundance Delight in it and share it. We pray for a powerful movement among the Jews, O oh God, that they would come to see Jesus as their Messiah. I pray for a humbling movement among Gentiles, that there be no arrogance, that there be no pride, that there be no understanding of supremacy. Instead, even as we heard the words of Jesus, we would be on the lookout for those who are on the margins. And we would feed them, and we would clothe them, and we would visit them, because one never knows when we might do that to Jesus. Father, in his name we pray these things. Amen.